Lucky number two. Welcome, dear and faithful listeners. I'm Amy. I'm Lacey. And we are your guides in The Library Game, an eclectically indecisive book club. So just to very briefly say, what is The Library Game? Well, that is our way of randomly figuring out the answer to that dreadful question of what do I read next? And in that process, what we do is we go to the library and we methodically, but randomly, pick out a book. And we do this by narrowing down our choices through what we call the RSSB coordinates. That's row, section, shelf, and book coordinates. Lacey, what were our coordinates for this book? Um, this time, our coordinates were 11, 4, 4, 5. So that led us to The Housing Lark by Sam Selvin. Um, and we're going to get right into our by the cover, which is the section where we do the thing you're not supposed to do, and we gratuitously judge this book by its cover. Let's do it. <laughs> this book is a Penguin Classics, and I feel like these are the type of books that you're supposed to read in school, but I don't think I've ever heard of this one. Have you? I have not, no. So what we have on the cover is a black man and woman. The man is playing a trumpet, and he's wearing kind of like old-timey clothes. They're both in black and white. And then it says, everything is if, if this and if that. You fellers does live in a dream world. And I remember when we picked this book up off the shelf, I started to read that because that is very prominent mm -hmm. in the top half of the book. And I remember thinking, this whole thing is the title? Yeah, I thought that was the title, too, because the actual title is really low. There's like a black bar across the bottom, and then the author's name and the housing lark is like small font way on the bottom of the of the cover. Mm -hmm. The quote is all in like bright, different colored font, and it's kind of wavy and all over the place. It's not like a straight line. Yeah, it's different sizes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the font is relatively the same, if a bit, you know, erratic, but it almost has that like ransom note, vibe, yep. you know, where it's like these letters have been glued onto another page kind of feel. Yeah. So there's the guy playing the trumpet, and then the girl, and the girl's kind of She's in the bottom of the page, and she's got this real dreamy look on her face. She's got her chin on her hand, and she's sort of looking up, not really at him, but just up into the sky. So maybe she's just- Kind of like a daydreaming. Yeah. Yeah. So based on that, I guess my guess about this book is going to be something about jazz culture, uh, maybe following- I don't even know the right time period for that. Is that like the 20s? Uh, yeah, I think there, you know, during the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition, there was a lot of like jazz club type stuff going on. So my guess is that it's, it's like a, maybe we're following this musician through his life as he's overcoming racial bias of the time period, but he's, he's a gifted musician and maybe he ends up being like a famous jazz player. Yeah, I definitely get the jazz vibes. I mean, I think that's pretty prominent with the trumpet player kind of being so big on the cover. And yeah, I think you're right. Especially this if and, you know, live in a dream world and stuff like that. I think it's going to be definitely a clash of, you know, like African American people in this time period gaining more freedoms, but still having to recognize that like, you have not gone as far as you think you have and you need to be careful because the realities of the United States in this time period are still very brutal for, you know, non-white people. I think there's going to be an aspect of that, of this struggle between wanting to be freer and to be more self-actualized and everything like that with the societal and systematic, you know, racism that is still very real of the time. So I think we're going to have this weird combo of happy and whimsy with a very stark background. And I think you see that too with the contrast between the black and white picture and then the very colorful, like, is it red or orange or kind of pinkish background? It's it's like an orangey red. Yeah. And then the letters are like yellow and green and pink. So I think that there's that clash of this greater freedom that is still being restricted and the struggles with that. You went deep on that. <laughs> Man. All right. 
I'm just trying to be, if I say enough words, one of them will be. <laughs> I'm, I'm the monkey at the typewriter just aiming for Shakespeare over here, okay? All right, so I'm going to read the back of the book, and I am going to say there's a sticker over part of it, so I might stumble trying to decipher what is under the sticker. So immediately we're wrong uh, about Dang. a couple things. Set in London in the 1960s. Damn. So wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> when, when the UK encouraged its Commonwealth citizens to emigrate as a result of the post-war labor shortage, the housing lark explores the Caribbean migrant experience in the mother country by following a group of friends as they attempt to buy a home together. Despite encountering a racist and predatory rental market, the friends scheme, often comically, to find a literal and figurative place of their own. Will these motley folks, male and female, black and Indian from Trinidad and Jamaica, dreamers, hustlers, and artists, be able to achieve this milestone of upward mobility? Unique and wonderful, comic and serious, cynical and tenderhearted, the housing lark poses a question of whether their lark, or quixotic idea of finding a home, can ever become a reality. Ketitian British novelist and playwright Carol Phillips contributes a foreword while post-colonial literature scholar Dora Ahmad provides a contextual introduction. Interesting. So I'm excited that it's funny. Yeah, I think we hit on the contrast between wanting more and systemic racism being an aspect. I'm confused about if music's involved or not, because it's such a prominent part of the <laughs> the cover. That... I know, I know. I mean, it says it's a mix of a motley crew of folks, dreamers, hustlers, artists, you know, so they probably each kind of do something different. So one of them is bound to play the trumpet, right? Like that can't just be there for no reason. <laughs> I'm really interested to see how all of this is packed in because this is a small book. It really is. It's only 125 pages. I I did look at that. The one thing I'm nervous about, and this is based on the text on the cover, is that it's going to be one of those books that's like written in, what's it called when like you write in the style that someone speaks? Oh, like in the parlance, I guess you could say, or the lingo. Yeah. And I, I find those books really hard to get into. So I'm a little nervous mm. it's going to be like that. I think it'd be fun. It feels and it sounds like it's going to be a little bit more lighthearted. Thank than God. what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I, I feel like I thought it was going to be like a very serious book with occasional humor or occasional like happy points. And yeah. it sounds more like it's going to be a happy book with occasional like darker aspects. Yeah. I hope that's true. There's only one way to find out. Yeah, let's get to it. All right. Well, that was a quick read for both of us and a really interesting kind of different format than what we've gone through before. As a quick, very brief synopsis of the story, what we have here is all these newly immigrated people from the Caribbean islands who have come to live in London and work in London, and they have, you know, bad housing situations and through the inspiration of all the different characters, they decide to get together, pool their money so that they can buy their own house where they can all live and not be beholden to these London landlords that are constantly looking down on them. The story is structured a little different. We'll kind of get into that, but I do want to give very briefly the main points of the story. First point being that our main character gets a roommate named Harry Banjo, and with his arrival comes the idea of getting a house. From there, the next big point I would say is Harry Banjo is then arrested through not-so-great means. Uh, basically, another character kind of lets him take the rap. Hold my weed. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> hold my weed for me real quick. It'll be fine. And then there's a span of time where the group are doing their best, maybe not doing their best to save money. And then there is an excursion that they use as an opportunity to raise money where they get a bunch of people from the area onto this bus to go to some palace grounds place. And then finally, at the end of the story, Harry Banjo's agent shows up at the home right before Harry is about to get out of jail and basically reveals that Harry's got this music contract all lined up. They just got to solidify a couple things. And at the end of the story, you're left with this understanding that everything's going to be all right. Turns out the lark wasn't so much of a lark after all. 
That is one of the things that confused me about just reading the title of the book. The lark piece, I al- like. I thought that that was music related. Mm-hmm. I don't think of the word lark as like, you know, like a like a adventure. Really, <laughs> that's kind of what they meant it as. Huh. Yeah, I think when I hear lark, I think either a bird or I did it on a lark. You know, just like without much thought, uh, happy go lucky. What do you mean by musical with lark? Well, just like the the bird. Oh, okay. So like the sing song kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. It took me a little bit to understand that that's what they meant by lark. <laughs> yeah. So the story itself, it's only what, like 125 pages or something. It was very, very short. As a matter of fact, I think the foreword and the intro were almost not quite as long as the story itself, but they were a good <laughs> chunk of the actual physical book. Did you read the intro and the foreword before you read the book or did you read it after? I read it before and I kind of wish that I hadn't. I was going to gonna say the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I wish that yeah. I hadn't. Because one, the book is so short that they, I mean, they kind of tell you everything that happens in the book. and the there, So there's the intro and the foreword. Mm-hmm written by two different people, and they pull out quotes and stuff and give you examples of scenes as they're describing the merits of the book. Yeah. And a bunch of them were from maybe the very first section. So as I as I get into the actual book, I'm like, I just read all this. Yeah. I just read all this. Yeah. It, I would have liked to have gone back and read them because it definitely kind of goes into, well, this is maybe why he wrote it this way or how clever these kinds of setups and stuff are. But yeah, I think for me, I mentioned before that I don't often like to reread stories. And for me in particular, it's because if I know what's going to happen, I find myself skimming or skipping through rather than enjoying the story. And so I got a little bit of that as we were going through this or as I was reading this because I was like, oh, I've read this passage or, you know, they they explained this to me already. So that was a a little sad for me, but. I think reading the the intro and the foreword put me in not a good mindset for the book because it made me feel like I was in AP English class again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it definitely was kind of a literary analysis kind of thing. And I haven't had that said to me in a while or like dictated to me, I guess. So I I can see where you're coming from with that. But it was kind of interesting just in a general sense to kind of get a little bit more insight into the why of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it did make me think about some of the quotes and stuff. Although I will say I got a little annoyed because I do feel like they pulled the best stuff and I didn't want to come on podcast and be like, oh, here's a quote. They talk about it in the intro. Here's a quote. They talk (laughs) about it in the foreword. You know, I would have felt like a real chump. So I I was a little challenged in that sense to find uh, some other stuff. But I found a couple things that I really liked. So we can talk about those in a bit. It's kind of like they put the best part of the movie in the trailer. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, I I think that's exactly right. One of them mentioned something about one of the characters. I think it was Syl talking about how he's a lady chaser and stuff, which I guess I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but they alluded to it, but they didn't spell it all out. So when I got to that part, I was like, ah, okay, okay, here's what they were talking about in the foreword. So the other big thing about this book that I sort of guessed at when we were looking at the cover is that it is written in uh, what is it called again vernacular vernacular the west indian vernacular english so the entire book not just the spoken parts but all of the narrative pieces are written in this same vernacular and i struggle with that so hard because I don't know. I just I it it's not immersive for me, which is weird because it should be more immersive. Well, but you're not an immersive experiencer because we talked about that in other episodes where you don't you don't have the imagery, you don't it's just words on the page. So I mean, I think it makes sense that you would struggle through that. Whereas I'm over here imagining now that's something that we can talk about here in a minute too cuz I could not find the audiobook for this. So We both read a physical copy of the book. But as I was reading, I was imagining someone with this voice speaking to me, you know, and I, you know, what it actually kind of made me think of was something along the lines of watching a movie with someone explaining the movie to you the whole time. Or another way of thinking about it was like sitting in a park and having someone point out people like, oh, I know all about him. Let me tell you a story about that guy. Or I know this girl. Let me you know, tell you all about her. So it was a neat 
way of receiving the story, I guess you could say, because it felt very conversational for me. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the ballad structure. Yeah. Right? So that's how each chapter of this book is described. It's not a chapter. It's a ballad. And so it's not serial. Mm -hmm. Each chapter doesn't necessarily come one right after the other. It's just sort of, like you said, if you were sitting out in the park talking to somebody and the natural flow of the conversation went from like, oh, this guy over here, you know, he did this and this is what's going on with him. But old Harry over there, he went over this way and this is where he came from. Yeah. Well, and it's very much like, okay, well, before we move on, one thing you have to know about this guy before I can tell you the rest of the story is that was kind of neat. I really, really do wish that I was able to to listen to it, though, because I, I think about if the voice that I had in my head reading me the story would have been the same as the audiobook, so. So, yeah, is there any, being the first one that you've physically read, is there anything else that you noticed just different about this experience? Well, I okay, so I will say the ballad structure and the shorter just overall length of the story was helpful for me with physically reading it because these ballads were maybe a page and a half. A couple of them were maybe two, three, four pages long, but they were little snippets that I didn't feel so bad if I needed to set the book down real quick. Because I would say that if you give me a physical copy of a book, what I want to do is binge it. I want to sit down and just read until I'm done. I mean, I did that with the Game of Thrones books. I did that with the King Killer Chronicle books. I did that with the Harry Potter books. I it's one like if I get into a story, I don't want to do anything else. But I think about my really hardcore binge reading experiences were when I was in school. And so I had more time or I didn't have other responsibilities or, you know, necessarily or not as many. And so I had the opportunity and the stamina of youth to stay up all night reading a book, <laughs> you know, and not fall asleep. So I found myself reading one ballad and setting the book down and going to do something and then picking the book up and reading a couple ballads. And every now and then I would get sucked in and I read longer than I thought I was going to. But I do feel like I don't have the patience for sitting down to read a book anymore because I've gotten so used to listening to a book in my car while I'm driving or while I'm doing chores or something like something that I can do without much thinking. And I find that very convenient. So it was it was interesting. I might be a bit disappointed in myself because I feel like I'm losing some, I don't know, something about like physically reading a book feels like more mature. <laughs> <laughs> and or just like more dignified, maybe. And so there's, there is a part of me that's like, oh, Amy, you chump, you know, you can't even read a book anymore. <laughs> You're just more efficient. I'll say this is 100% the shortest book we've read and the one that took me the longest to read. Isn't that funny? Yeah, because I, I just like it was work to get through the language pieces yeah. of it. And it's now that you've said that it makes sense for me because it's not immersive. Like, I definitely was reading the book in the vernacular in my voice. You yeah, know you what can't I mean? do that. No, you, <laughs> you got to put, like, old man sitting by a fire, <laughs> chewing on, like, the fat from, you know, his dinner or whatever, <laughs> picking at his teeth, you know, all of it. Like, that. that's that's what you got to hear. And I, I, I honestly, like, again, I wish I actually physically got to hear it, but – I think my the voice in my brain did it justice because it was not my voice at all. It probably wasn't a good example of like the accent whatsoever, but um, <laughs> it was not my voice. No. Do we want to just quickly go through some of the characters and just kind of talk about them? Do you want to do that? Yeah. So one thing I think to note is that the narrator is not any of the characters. Yeah. Right? So the narrator talks to you, the reader, sort of in this first person-y kind of way, right? But it's not anyone involved in the story. Yeah. So again, like the guy kind of sitting on the bench telling you the story about all the people around you. Mm -hmm. The The narrator definitely has that magical insight that the narrator of stories often have. Yeah. One of the 
either the person in the intro or the foreword called the narrative style of this book embodied omniscience. Now, if that's not like a cool band name, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, there, there is a technical term for this, and we're going to sound really dumb if we don't have it. So thank you for looking that up. <laughs> embodied, embodied omniscience. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that sounds like some sort of astral projection term, but... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's what happens when you do... Uh, ayahuasca <laughs> yeah there you go there you go you connect to the the infinite divine but you're still <laughs> within your physical form so i will say i can't remember if it's the forward or the intro because they both kind of blurred together for me because they do overlap quite a bit in what they talk about but it made me want to look up and i didn't do it but it made me want to look up calypso as like an art form because if you would ask me hey what's calypso i'd be like oh, it's music it's it's a type of music you hear it in the Caribbean. But apparently there's so, it's so much deeper than that. Like it is storytelling. And so I think that that narrative style, that storytelling style is, quote, Calypso. I thought about that a little bit because the Harry Banjo guy, he's a Calypsonian or something like that. Like he, he's Jamaican, but he yeah, that's the style well, but his singing music. style is. Yeah, yeah. And so it, I think it was an interesting kind of way of saying, I'm giving you Calypso by telling you about this guy who sings Calypso, you know? And so I don't know if I, if I understood that correctly, but it made me want to think more about it. And then, of course, I, you know, Didn't. saw a Star Wars commercial or something and decided to think about that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Just a very squirrel moment. Okay, so yeah, we've got this character that's not a character that is the narrator. And then we have, it's not a very long list of characters. They're a tight knit little group. Do you want to take us through just like who the main people are? Yeah. So we have Battersby or more commonly Bat, who's sort of the main character, I would say, right? Yeah. I, I think he's kind of like the central character, if not the main right. character. Yeah. Right. He's the one who is sort of encourages the idea of this housing lark so that he can be the gatherer of the money. Never actually believing that a house will come of it. He just is, sees it as a way for him to get money from his friends to spend, you know, as soon as he gets it. He's always looking for a way to borrow or... Yeah, I think one of the first ballads about him talks about how he has this sneaky way of getting people to just hand him money and then like yeah. they don't even think about it. And he's always looking for a way to take advantage of a situation. So that's Harry Banjo arrives as his roommate because he can't pay his own rent. So the landlord's like, well, if you can't pay the rent, you got to have a roommate. But he all already sees that as an opportunity because he tells Harry Banjo that his half of the rent is the whole is rent. Is the entire. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> like the amount that he tells Harry is the entire. And then I think also utilities or groceries too or something. So yeah. Harry is basically carrying bat from here on out and isn't yeah. super, isn't aware of it. But yeah, Harry is, uh, he's the most fresh off the boat character, shows up with his banjo, he's sure that he's going to make it. So you could see him as kind of the fresh, bright-eyed, idealistic newcomer to London, whereas the rest of these, they're still newer immigrants, but they're more settled than, than Harry is, obviously. Well, and there's an interesting part of the story about why did people come? Why did people immigrate? Because they are met with a lot of racism. They are not well received by the Londoners. They have to live in, you know, the worst places if they can find somewhere to live at all. Nobody wants to give them a job. They just don't fit culturally. Yeah, and they're crowded together in, yeah. in these kind of slum areas. But yeah, I think that the overall story is like, the post-World War II worker shortage in England and the need for jobs or supposed need for jobs for people that are from the islands. And so people from the British Caribbean islands are encouraged to come to England because, hey, there's work here, you know, come make your fortune but I think some of what they talked about is it's not people didn't only come here because, oh, I'm in, I'm in this horrible life. Oh, and yeah. You know, yeah. I need to make better for myself. Some of them are just like curious. Let's go try something new. Yeah. And that's like a commentary in the book about how the official story is everyone in the West Indies needs jobs and England needs workers. So look at this match made in heaven. 
But yeah, the the commentary is just like some of them were just like, I wonder what it's like over there, you know, in yeah. Britain. It's a lark. <laughs> yeah, ex- everything's a lark. Yeah. <laughs> so we also have a couple others, and I think I might go ahead and say my favorite character okay. if I can. Gallows is my favorite. So Gallows is definitely the most destitute of the group. Does he even have his own place to live? I don't even know if he lives anywhere. He is like the stray mutt dog of the group. And his whole thing is that he lost a fiver, a five pound note, which for a lot of, you know, these immigrant people is like, that's a lot of money, you know. And he lost it and he cannot let it go. And so he's the way he walks is all hunched over and looking at the ground because he's constantly looking for this five pound note. It's like this weird obsession that he has. Yeah. And I'm we're talking months and months later. He dropped it in the street and like every room he enters, he's searching for it. He's looking for it. He's constantly suspecting that yeah. you have it, you have it. He will find other denominations of money and leave it or put it down because it's not his fiver. This leads me to a personal story that is related in the time that I read this chapter or this ballad. Okay. So right before I read this ballad, I had an incident happen where I had some packages on my front porch and I walked out to get my package and there was a little lizard on the ground next to the package. And I, being the person that I am, I started talking to the lizard and observing it and it was so cute and it had this like blue tail and I watched it run around my porch and up the column or whatever on the porch before I came inside. So then I grabbed all my stuff, went in the house, I sat down on my couch and I think I was, I turned the TV on or something. I sat there for a little bit uh, and then I started opening these random packages up and I pick up the one on the top of the pile and I rip the tab open and another fucking lizard jumps out of the package (laughs) it wasn't a package of lizards (laughs) you know that was not the intended result (laughs) so it scared the shit out of me it jumped out landed on the arm of my couch and i screamed you know and threw the stuff that i was holding on the floor and it runs around the corner of my couch and so i jump up and i i go get uh like a bag i think i'm gonna i'm gonna get it in this bag and take it back outside with its friend And it's just gone. (laughs) So right after this happens, I read the chapter or the ballad where Gallows is searching for this fiver. And like for the next three days, I'm Gallows looking for the lizard in my house. And I never found it. I feel his pain because I never found the lizard. Either it escaped or there's a lizard carcass somewhere. See, what's funny about that is that yours is this like paranoid (laughs) hunter versus a desperate hunter you know what i mean like you're on a war path and he's just groping and grasping and you know just flailing <laughs> but okay to get us back on the story no i do i love that story though that cracks me up another great thing about gallows i feel like is he's also like i said he's kind of like the stray of the group he's kind of like the beat puppy of the group too which is like a mean thing to say but he's the one that i think it's made fun of quite a bit And because he has no standing, because he's the most destitute out of everybody, I don't even think he has a job. I think he will occasionally like go do work so he can eat or something. But he's also not the brightest of the group. So he often is just like when the group gets on to something, he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it, you know. And so when they start up this agreement that we're going to save up money so that we can buy a house, there's talk about it's like, all right, boys, no more drinking, no more smoking, no more going out to take birds to the movies which is what they call (laughs) women you know none of this stuff and gallows is like yeah and y'all better believe that i'm gonna be watching you if i catch any of you you're gonna owe 250 or something like that here's the other thing i don't understand how british money works so like when they say like 260 (laughs) two pence give me three quid five sterling like that that means absolutely nothing to me I understand pound and dollar, like they don't exactly match, but whatever, right? Like I understand that, but the pence and other denominations of currency, I do not understand. So I just, I try to think about it in terms of dollars, but even that doesn't make a lot of sense. But he's very much gung-ho, like my contribution to this isn't going to be the money. It's going to be the enforcement of these rules that we've quote unquote implemented for ourselves. Yeah, I think he says... 
he knows that he can't contribute and he hopes that by policing everyone else, nobody will notice that he's not actually yeah. contributing himself. Yeah. Well, and I think he even, he mentions like, yeah, in the house, uh, I, you know, I'll just, basement room's fine with me. You know, <laughs> he's like, I'll, that, I, I can make that work. He reminds me a little bit of Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove. There you go. Kind of okay. like the big dumb yeah. enforcer. <laughs> I can see that for sure. One of the quotes that I wrote down involves him. So this is towards the end when they get back together. They're about to count the money, but the women are basically challenging Bat in particular. Like, hey, put the money out on the table. Let's count it right now. No more games. We want to know how much money is pulled together. And at this point, the women are kind of just like, they're not taking no for an answer. They're not letting the guys smooth talk their way out of it or anything. And the line says, Gallows edge over by Matilda and Jean as if he feel that is the safest place in the room. <laughs> just again, just the way he's just like, nope, this is where I'm going to survive. Because I think at the core of it, it's because Gallows is like a survivor and he's not by wits or anything like that. It's just he's a very aware of the temperature of the room kind of thing. Speaking of the women, we can go, really, there's three female characters central to the story. Do you want to mention those? So there's Jean, who's Bat's sister. She lives upstairs from him. She is a prostitute. And then she has a roommate whose name is Matilda. And Bat is constantly trying to get in her pants. They use, in my opinion, some of the grossest language around <laughs> women. I struggled yeah. a lot. They talked about having a stroke. That's how they called having sex with somebody. So he's really into Matilda. And she's... she's open to his advances oh no i mean they i think they have sex at least once in the story she tries to play a little hard to get but yeah because she wants bat to marry her yeah <laughs> um and then there's <laughs> tina who is fitz's wife yeah so fitz is another one of the boys so him and tina they're the only ones that are married as the story starts and they have a few children and there is some commentary about how fitz was you know he would go drinking with the boys he'd go smoking with the boys he'd you know play cards or whatever he was like the man's man of the group until tina got a hold of him yeah made him settle down and suddenly he was doing housework and he was at home all the time and you know all this stuff so they kind of poked fun at him but at the same time it kind of seems like you know as far as this whole group goes tina and fitz are really the most successful of everybody like yeah. just on their own because tina holds down the fort yeah i mean i think what the conclusion of the story comes to is really that the women are the ones who push everybody to be better so left to their own devices the men waste time waste money they can't get organized they screw off and mm -hmm. all they want to focus on is drinking and smoking and finding and chasing women yeah 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 so they without the women to keep them organized and to really get their minds you know out of the 13 year old boys that I guess they just yeah. <laughs> wish to be, the plot would never move forward. And apparently this author's, one of his previous books that did very well, centering around a really similar topic, the women were not treated so nicely in those books. And so this was sort of like a later in this time period, the women have found their place kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That was the impression I got, at least from the forewords. Yeah, I, th I think what they specifically mentioned, so the book that this author wrote before was called The Lonely Londoners, and it was about the same concept of people from the Caribbean immigrating to England for work and stuff. And I think they specifically mentioned that the way he wrote the book then, because he was an immigrant himself. The way he wrote the book then really focused on the earlier instances of that immigration where it was mostly men who immigrated. And then the women came later. So like a lot of these men would come, they would get settled. And then they would send for their wives or they would send for, you know, family members to come after. And so you almost kind of wonder if it's the mindset of that bachelor setup when the entire group is men. And so you have that bachelor mindset of just like, oh, we're just gonna drink and, you know, we'll work, whatever. We'll chase these British girls. That's something different. But then the women come through and they're like, okay, everybody settle down. Let's get back to work. You know, let's let's make this happen. And I think they use that dynamic throughout the book to kind of talk about like, is it a lark? Is it a plan? Is it feasible? Is it a dream that Bat thought up while he was looking at the genie lamps on the wallpaper in his room? Okay, so a couple other characters. There's just a couple more. There's 
a character called Poor, who is the weed dealer of the group. They mention he's always got weed on him. No one really knows how he gets it. So he's the one that happens by Harry Banjo, I think in a park, and they're hanging out. And then they notice that these two police officers have been kind of watching Poor. And so Poor hands his stash to Harry Banjo. He's like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Just hold on. I'll get this back from you later. Don't worry about it. And he kind of takes off. And I think one of the cops goes after Poor. And then the other one, I think, stays at with Harry and ends up arresting Harry. And so for the majority of the book, Harry's in jail. And after that, everyone's mean to Poor because he he did this thing. And, you know, he left Harry holding the bag. Yeah. And Gallows kind of hits on that. He's like, oh, yeah, you're bottom of the totem pole now. Ha ha. You know, I'm going to I've got a little bit of status now and I'm going to lord it over you. Well, Gallows is the one who rats him out because he was following them because he thought they were going to go smoke cigarettes when they weren't supposed to be smoking cigarettes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just the regular kind of cigarettes, (laughs) let alone weed cigarettes. And then there's also probably your least favorite character, I would hazard a guess, being Syl, short for Sylvester, I think, who the only thing interesting about him is that he's constantly chasing women, thinks he's the woman whisperer, and the other guys like to rile him up and get him talking about how great he is with women and then start scenarios where it's very obvious that he's not. Yeah, there's one point, I guess, in his ballad where he actually gets a girl who's interested in him and he has no idea what to do he's just baffled he's very superstitious so he's got this cross that he's constantly (laughs) kissing and he's knocking on wood like there's this whole thing where they're stringing him out like oh you know you should go get a hotel room where y'all can stay the night and all this stuff he's like well where would i get that how much is it gonna be no one's gonna let a hotel room to people like us but they're stringing him along and getting him just more and more worked up to the point where gallows picks up a crate or something and breaks it so he can have some wood just in his hand (laughs) and will just hold the wood out so that Syl will knock on it just like over and over and over again. But even that, that ballad in particular, that was the most uncomfortable story point for me because it was just like gross. Yeah. It wasn't graphic or, you know, anything like that. But the whole time this girl's just like, uh, no, no, I don't think so. I don't, mm -mm, no, I don't want to. No, but they keep taking her places. But then, I mean, at the end of that, she, I think she ends up and goes and sleeps with Bat. So I don't know. But it was, it was weird and uncomfortable for me to read. Yeah. Although I will say the comedy of Syl just slowly losing it kind of helped. Yeah. The other funny thing with Syl is the, uh, this is like a flashback, I think, for when he first arrived. And he was looking for somewhere to stay. And they, I think it's Bat, suggests to him that he should go try to get a room in this house that houses Indians, like India Indians, and that he should pretend he's from India. So he goes and he does that, trying hard and probably not succeeding well at appearing to be Indian. Yeah, it plays into the stereotypes that British people expect. Yeah. So the landlord is a little skeptical, but buys it enough that he gives him the room. But there's another guy staying there who starts asking him questions and is suspicious that he's not really Indian. So he comes up with this idea that he's going to tell the landlord, oh, that guy's not Indian. Yeah. So I'm going to get- Call him out before he can- Yeah. I'm going to get him kicked out, but it backfires and, and he ends up being the one who gets kicked out and found out as being not Indian. And then you come to find out after that, that the guy who was suspicious of him was also not really Indian. He was also faking it. Yeah, and so he came like, oh no, this other guy is gonna give up the game or something. And so I gotta get rid of him. Yeah, that was a very good, just, I mean, a very funny, for sure. So this book is billed as a comedy. Uh huh. I did not find it overly comedic. Like there were moments like that and there were absurdities. I would call it absurd. Yeah, it's more comedy on the absurd side, I would say, yeah. Not like ha ha ha, laugh out loud funny, but just like ironic, you know, using irony for humor, for sure. My favorite example of that is actually another character that we didn't put in our list to talk about necessarily, but Nobby, he was a minor character, but his ballad was all about how he felt like he had to be so nice to his landlady because, you know... Any of the immigrants could get kicked out of their place at any time. And so in being super nice to his landlady, he's constantly complimenting the landlady's dog, which is just 
it's just a dog. It's a mutt. It's a nothing dog. But he feels like he's got to say something nice. So he he goes on and on about how, oh, how I love that dog and all this stuff. I wish I had a dog like that. <laughs> yeah. And if she ever has puppies, you let me know because, oh my goodness, what a beautiful dog that is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, the dog gets pregnant, has a litter of puppies, and the lady brings him one. And he doesn't want a dog. He doesn't want a dog at all. He's like, what? I can barely feed myself. Now I got to And the landlady's like, oh, you can just give him a little bit of steak. You know, no big deal. Uh, all this stuff. He's like, I'm over here eating beans and rice. And I, now I got to buy steak for the dog. So the dog follows him around for like a day or two or something. And finally, he finds a guy at his work who mentions that his wife was wanting a dog. Well, then he gets into, oh, some mental math, like how much can I get this guy to give me money for the dog, right? And so that's another line that I had quoted out was, now that a solution was at hand, Nobby start to do some rapid cogitation. (laughs) I mean, just how quickly, and that's like every character in the story is how quickly they're like, okay, how can I turn this to my advantage? Because you have to take advantage of every opportunity that comes, right? And so... (laughs) He finally figures out, okay, so what I'm going to do is he's going to give me this much money. I'm going to bring him the dog. And then he has to come up with this whole sob story for his landlady about how like, oh, you know, she wasn't feeling well. So I took her to the vet and then it just went down and then she died. The dog died. I'm so torn up about this. I'm crying. And like he puts on this whole show for the landlady and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can really tell that you're an animal lover. Here's one of the other puppies <laughs> and gives him another dog. And he has, to, he has to take it. And I like that was one of the ones where I was just like, ah, that was good. That was well done. I really liked that. But my original note for that line, so start to do some rapid cogitation, was it makes me think of how it kind of plays into the West Indian vernacular English, the the pidgin language, the Creole, however you want to, you know, refer to it. And it made me think of how if you are having to very quickly take on, and that's what I think when I looked up the real definition of Creole language or a pidgin language is, is the oversimplified combination of things that allows like people who do not share a language to very quickly learn how to communicate with each other, kind of pulling a little bit from here and there. But it also made me think of how The way that I learned Spanish in school was formal terms. And so when I speak to native Spanish speakers, I've been told like, oh, you have very formal Spanish, you know, like saying usted to everybody instead of saying tu, which is the less formal way of saying you. And so this idea of like the way that the story is written, it's very slang. It sounds in a lot of ways, like uneducated, I guess you could say, because it's not a higher order of English. But at the same time, you get words like cogitation thrown in, which I originally thought was like, I'm going to admit this. I didn't know that cogitation was an actual word. (laughs) I thought it was that this pidgin language had come like, I know cognition. And so I'm just going to kind of tweak that word to make it sound like, you know, to like verb the word, basically. And it made me think of the way that people will mess up Spanish sometimes when you think that sounds kind of like this English word. So I'll do this, you know, the best example being embarazada, which does not mean embarrassed. It means pregnant. Oh, and so the just the funny way that that comes about, but it made me think of, okay, so if these people in the islands are being taught English, they probably have a little bit of formal education, but it's probably mostly the half English that a lot of other people that they live with and work with and are around have learned, right? And so you get these random, what I would call like higher vocabulary words thrown in with very slang or very quote, like low class sounding English. And that's what that made me think of was that rapid cogitation. And I have another quote that kind of talks into that too, at the end when they are just going after bat to like get the money out let's count it how much do we have here yada 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 so the lines are i say i ain't count it bat say you don't understand the queens and it took me a second i was like oh the queen's english like how people say that and then he says you want me to put it in west indian for you i have not assessed the sterling situation (laughs) (laughs) i just thought that was so funny because it was like again they're they're using this slang this lingo and everything like that he's like oh you want me to put it west indian I have not assessed the Sterling situation. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. What was uh, what was your favorite ballad? I don't know. I, can I be totally honest? I didn't like any of it. <laughs> 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 I 
Was it just because it was such a slog for you? I don't know. I just did not enjoy any part of this book. Interesting. I guess if I had to pick something I liked, uh, probably the Gallows stuff. Yeah. I, I think my favorite was uh, was the whole story about Nobby getting the dog, trying to get rid of the dog, and then just ending up with the dog anyway. I thought that was I thought that was good. This is it's this sounds so bad, I guess, but repeating the stories of the book in conversation is more enjoyable to me than actually reading the book. Like you telling the story of the guy with the dog to me is funnier than the actual story was to read it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, I I mean I am an entertaining person. I can <laughs> I can I can see that. I mean, that's probably why people listen to the podcast anyway, right? Listeners, all of you out there. You're there, right? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, you know, probably, again, because you're getting a story just kind of told to you mm-hmm. versus you reading it when you read stories, you don't read them the way they're sounding. And so I really think that that might be a really interesting thing that we've caught on to here. Yeah. This is the kind of story that works to me way more than it works to you. Yeah. It makes me wonder, okay, did you ever read The Martian? Mm-hmm. Did you have a, a similar issue with that? No, I liked I liked that. And that was like diary style, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I wonder, because The Martian was actually one of the first books that I listened to. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Audiobooks are amazing, you know? <laughs> but but it, was, it was one that carried over into that like audio style very, very, very well. And that's why, again, I'm so mad that I could not find an audio version of this book because I feel like audiobook is the perfect medium for this kind of storytelling. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe you would enjoy it more if you had gotten to listen to it. I highly doubt it, but maybe. Maybe we'll have to do that in a future episode. Like, I'll have to listen to the book. Ah, that's a good idea. I had one more line that I I just really liked the phrase. And it's not really connected to like the ballad itself or anything like that. But it was at the very beginning. It was when the rent collector came around to demand Bat's rent. And then eventually was like, okay, well, you're going to have to have a roommate. And he was described as he had a way as if butter won't melt in his mouth. And for whatever reason, I just, the visual of that, like, he's just a cold motherfucker, <laughs> you know, like, that was, that was, that's what it meant, you know, because, like, butter, which will mean, uh, okay, I'm over-explaining it, but you get what I mean, like, yeah. I just, like, oh, that was a cool phrase, you know. I will say, it's not my favorite book, but I, I enjoyed it. There were a couple little things like that. I think <laughs> when Pat gets Matilda to sleep with him, he, okay, so there's this whole thing about the genie lamp wallpaper in his room and he thinks about it he's like oh maybe if i rub the right one a genie will pop out and solve all my problems you know and that's like a little theme that goes throughout the book he even goes as far as like to tear off a little bit of the of the wallpaper at the end like i'm gonna take this with me but he gets matilda to sleep with him and i'm pretty sure at his moment of climax or whatever he says like yeah genie or something (laughs) like that and and then it's over and there's like a quiet for a second and then matilda goes why did you say your sister's name just now? (laughs) And then it goes on to a different ballad. And I remember just like, I dropped the book. I was like, oh shit, that's hilarious. (laughs) So I, again, I think another example of a book I would never have picked up, picked out myself, I found quite a bit that I liked in it. And even though I had to physically read it, oh my God, what year is it? I still, I still had a good time with it. I did have a quote that I wrote down that was... I just thought was thought provoking, I guess. And it was towards the beginning, I think. It says, being unrealistic is the only way that anything will ever change. So it's this idea that if you want to move forward, you have to have big ideas that you might not be able to achieve. But you're never like nothing is ever going to change if you don't reach beyond your grasp. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine what isn't already in order to make a change. Yeah, I I think if it was early on, that might have been just commentary about Harry Banjo's optimism versus everybody else's have fun pessimism, you know. But I liked that idea and I thought it was, I don't know, one to keep with you. Yeah. Well, what's funny is the last thing that I have written down here is from the end of the book i think it's actually from the very last ballad it's the first line of like the last ballad in the book 
And the line is, of all living things, man is the only one who does worry. And I think that's an interesting like counter to, you know, because again, the whole point of the book is this optimism versus pessimism, you know, idealism versus realism, and this back and forth of can we do it? Are we our own worst enemy in this? You know, am I my own saboteur kind of thing? Or is it the systemic racism that's against all the immigrants in the in the area, you know, and stuff like that? And I was like, well, you know, ow, that's true. You know, we're we're the most anxious animals in existence. Except for chihuahuas. Well, okay. But <laughs> that's also our fault. <laughs> So if we were going to rate this book, what are we rating out of? I mean, it's got to be something to do with a fiver, right? (laughs) Okay. Like how many pounds out of of a fiver? (laughs) Because neither of us know how many that means. Yeah, out of uh, 43 quid, I'm going to go with uh, two sterling. (laughs) Because I have no idea what the fuck that means. (laughs) I've also never like actually attempted to look it up. I'm sure it's a very simple system and it makes total sense, but I have no idea. But okay, so one to five pounds. Two pence. Two pence. Now that I know is less than a pound. I think that's like a penny, right? <laughs> Something along those lines. Yes. Yeah, probably. That's my rating. <laughs> really? All right. I liked it more than you did. But I will say for our audience, our vast, innumerable audience, that I am also kind of a bad critic, even though this is our fifth, let's rate the book or whatever. I will find something I like in most things, but I'll give this one three cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Are we doing prison money now? I don't know. The exchange rate is a little foggy in my brain, but I mean, especially like for as short as it was. I mean, it did take me a couple days to read it because again, I kept picking it up and then I would be like, oh, I'm going to go look at the deer outside. I would get very distracted. But it was a fast read. Like if you totaled up the amount of time that I actually physically spent reading, it probably wasn't very long at all. So if uh, you read the book, I think we would love to hear your opinions on it. I think this is the first one we haven't been totally on the same page about. Basically, yeah, I I think you and I might have been like one or two off on our arbitrary ratings. But yeah, I think that this is the one that we disagree on. You did not like it. And I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have your own opinions, your favorite characters, your favorite ballad, uh, tell us why we're right, why we're wrong, why I'm more right than Lacey is, (laughs) all of that, uh, you can reach out to us in a number of ways. What are those ways, Lacey? You can email us at librarygamepodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Library Game. Yeah. Again, we'd love to hear from you guys as much as I love the sound of my own voice. Wouldn't mind y'all's too. So, or, or, you know, your voice reading their words. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's the best of both worlds if you think <laughs> about it. Their words, my voice, it's beautiful. All right, but putting the housing lark behind us, all of that nasty disagreement. Next time, <laughs> we do you want to give our coordinates? Yeah, so our RSSB coordinates, again, that would be row, section, shelf, and book coordinates that led us to our next book. The numbers for us were 8, 3, 1, 13. That's row 8, section 3, shelf 1, book 13. So these coordinates led us to The Plotters by Unsu Kim. So if you want to read along, go grab that one before you listen to the next episode, or you can use those coordinates to lead you to your own random choice. And we would love to hear what that led you to if you decide to go in that direction. I think it would be fun to start compiling a list of other books that people found using the same numbers, but in a different library. And maybe we can do something fun with that too. All right. Until next time. Peace.